Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. All right, welcome everyone to the first episode of a brand new season of the Abundant Edge podcast. I can't believe I'm starting the fourth year of this little pet project that I had three years ago after I had just moved to Guatemala and was wrapping up an internship on bamboo building. And now here I am, having moved to northeastern Spain and with more than 50,000 of you incredible folks tuning into this show every month from all around the world. I'm so happy to be able to keep this show going and I'm really excited to start a new season with a brand new website that makes it easier than ever to search for topics, names, categories, and really anything you want to help you access the great information from more than 140 interviews in our archives. I really encourage you all to check it out if you haven't yet. And of course, if you enjoy the content of this show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or whichever service provider you use. More than anything, this helps me get these episodes out and into the ears of more people. And that means more people equipped with the knowledge and the techniques to begin to heal and regenerate this planet. But that's enough of the prologue. Let's jump into today's episode. So for those of you who have been following the last handful of episodes, you know that we're deep into an ongoing series on reforestation and agroforestry. And though most of the previous interviews have been with people working directly to plant trees and restore native forests, I decided to switch the focus for this session for two important reasons. The first is that without good soil and access to water, very few things will grow, or at least they'll take much, much longer to get established. The second is that Mark Shepard, founder of New Forest Farm in Wisconsin and the author of Restoration Agriculture, has finally just released his much-awaited second book called Water for Any Farm, which outlines his revolutionary expansion on the P.A. Yeoman's original classic called Water for Every Farm. Now in this interview, I got to speak with Mark about how his decades of experience on his own farm, as well as designing and consulting on farms all over the country, helped him to solve some of the shortcomings from the original Keyline design system. We start by talking about how the mismanagement of land and water has created the conditions that we have today all over the world, where topsoil is constantly eroded and water quickly becomes a destructive force rather than a rejuvenating one, if it's left to run over naked landscapes. Mark goes into a lot of detail to describe how to read your landscape and identify key points that can be used as references for key lines to direct water all across your land in a way that slows it down and rehydrates the soil. We talk about what machinery and tools he recommends for major earthworks, the installation of different types of ponds, building soil over large acreage, and much more. Now, I get sent a lot of books to look over and review before speaking with authors, and I often don't have time to read them very thoroughly. But this one, Water for Any Farm, I really took the time to understand because of the incredible potential that this system has for increasing the productivity and resilience of any landscape, not just from an agricultural perspective. Adjusting the water harvesting capacity of your terrain can have an important impact on any kind of regeneration project and help with weathering severe climate challenges too. It's especially relevant to the ongoing series on reforestation and agroforestry because the earthworks method outlined in this book is how Mark was able to regenerate a damaged farm surrounded by monoculture and corn crops 
into the highly productive oak savanna mimicking ecosystem based around the pillars of hazelnut and chestnut orchards. I highly recommend you check this book out. I've put links to where you can buy it and learn more about Mark and his work in our show notes for this episode on the website. So let's kick off season four and I'll hand things over now to Mark Shepard. Hey Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show again. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. How have you been? Hey, been doing pretty well. Yourself, Oliver, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I've been doing real well, and I'm super excited. Uh, First of all, congratulations on the release of your new book, Water for Any Farm. And I know in southwestern Wisconsin, where your farm is, it's known as an area that's got quite a bit of water through rainfall and isn't considered like arid or water scarce. So what inspired you to focus an entire book on water? Well, the, the book on water, Water for Any Farm, uh, is the focus of this one. It's actually part of an overall uh, Restoration Agriculture series. Uh, Restoration Agriculture, my first book, explained uh, how New Forest Farm was designed uh, to imitate a natural plant community type, the oak savanna, and convert uh, agricultural production from annual cropping to perennial cropping using those plant communities as the, uh, as the template. Well, the first thing we wanted to do is manage the water so that uh, even though southwest Wisconsin gets um, a decent amount of rain, about 30 inches a meter, um, thereabouts of rain per year. There are times when it goes without. It was one year I uh, went completely without rain. On um, the second year, went almost the whole year without rain. And so I wanted to make sure that we had adequate water stored in ponds and in, in the soil. And uh, another example is, is Middle Tennessee and Kentucky this past calendar year, 2019. Two times the normal rainfall amount, like 80 inches, somewhat 80 inches of rain. Uh, however, in the middle of this year where they're getting twice the annual rainfall, they had the longest dry spell in history. And so they actually had the biggest drought ever, even though they had twice the rain. Well, so if we're having twice the rain and having these long dry spells, the water was there to, for continued agricultural production if it was captured, uh, delivered to a place, stored, soaked into the soil, etc., And it seems like we're starting to move towards this larger trend of heavier rainfall events followed by larger droughts as the climate starts to shift and is affected by, you know, human intervention. So this is all the more important to really set up these systems that can make best use of these massive events in order to kind of draw them out and create uh, access throughout the landscape when the dry spells also occur. So with that in mind, let's start by talking a little bit about how the agricultural techniques of settlers moving west in the U.S. after colonization quickly started to deplete the immense fertility of these savanna lands, like a perfect example of where you're located. Yeah, well, the the agricultural techniques of the first European settlers um, were all based and derived around growing annual grain crops for human consumption, for livestock feed, which required uh, eliminating the perennial ecology that was in place. If it was forested, like in the the east, it was, you know, clear-cut, then the stumps ripped out and burned, and then the ground was plowed, which exposed it to the rain and to the wind, so the soil began to wash away. It didn't have the natural perennial system rebuilding the soil after after it was oxidized, uh, originally oxidized by plowing, and then, like I said, eroded away with wind and rain. 
Same with the savannas and same with the prairies and, of course, same in the arid, more uh, drier areas. So, so basically it was, it was clearing of land in order to plow, to grow annual crops and the big, you know, the big two monsters in the upper Midwest anyways, the whole central U.S. is, is corn and beans. Those are the biggest ones in the Midwest. Yeah, it's a shame that so many of these techniques continue until today. And one of the things that you mentioned early on in the book is how some fairly enlightened early policymakers for American agricultural policy started to shift towards a, a smarter way of managing these landscapes to reduce the amount of erosion and soil depletion that was going on. But you're trying to take a few steps forward to not just minimizing the loss, but actually start to regain the fertility and the resilience of these landscapes. So as you state in chapter two, this book was written for professional agriculturalists and the language and the terms are really meant to help alternative farmers to communicate with government officials. Could you elaborate a little on why it's necessary to be able to do that? Well, well you had kind of touched on it a little bit, but every, everybody uh, who is, is involved with growing things on the ground, we have our own language, we come from our own background of, of describing how we deal with water, and the whole permaculture side of things, which is where I, I came from before I got into large-scale farming, um, uses a different set of language uh, words than the uh, that farmers use, which is a different set of words than civil engineers and stormwater managers use, which is a different set of words than what uh, Army Corps of Engineers used, and so on. And no matter where we go, <clears throat> we have different levels of uh, government authority. Some of it is hard authority. You know, they will they will arrest you if you do things incorrectly. Uh, some of it is permitting authority. Some of it is more of a soft authority, such as with uh, the USDA best management practices and their uh, agricultural codes. So what we need to do is we need to be able to uh, grow farm, uh, whatever we're farming. Um, so we need to have our water managed somehow. Well, we as the people actually growing food for sale, etc., uh, we need to be able to use language that describes what we do so that these various different governing officials understand what we're doing. And from the opposite side, of course, we have to understand what are the different rules that we have to comply with. Uh, I was just uh, in a workshop two days ago where there was a fellow from Washington State, and it's a water rights state, which means somebody owns the raindrops that falls on your farm. That sounds perverse to me. And there were He's not allowed to store water in anything like a container or a pond at all. So how do you uh, accomplish the objectives of having that rainfall be effective in your landscape um, and not be stored in a liquid form in a, in, a, in a container or a pond? And so we need to be able to uh, comply with these rules of wherever we are and yet still uh, be able to harvest our own rainwater, distribute it around our own farm, and have it stored in the soil where we can access it later on for, for crop productivity. Yeah, and as much of a minefield as it must be getting into farming with all of the regulations and the things that you have to uh, accommodate and understand and follow in, in this age of all, you know, all the litigation around it, I think it's a really important step, especially outlined in this book, that facilitates that kind of conversation so that people can start to make 
progress and move towards ecological ways of production while still working with the system and helping to guide it into something that aspires to a better way of of managing the land. So designing to mitigate normal extreme weather events is something that you really stress in this book because, like you said, the the extremities of, of these patterns is a given. And people are continuously looking at them as anomalies that are things that don't necessarily need to be accounted for and are unfortunate events and something either just to buy insurance for. But you really go to the source in saying that these events are the norm in nature and they should be accommodated for at the beginning of the design. Can you tell me a little bit how you've managed to do that in some examples of your own work? <laughs> well, because what's interesting about that the whole question is, is it's, it, in one sense, it's a sense of perspective in that, guess what? We're going to get a huge rain event some point in time. And if we don't plan for that, it's not a disaster. It's, it's coming. It's going to happen. There will be a big rain event. So we design for it. Uh, then we don't have these disasters. And let's just take an example. Last summer or a year ago, 2018, uh, there was a 19 and a half inch rainfall in Cross Plains, Wisconsin, uh, that I happened to be driving down the road when it hit. And it was this, literally a flash flood. I mean, this water, wall of water came out of nowhere and washed uh, several cars off the road, blew out a bridge. Uh, people died. Amazing amount of destruction. One of the reasons why that, that the flooding was so extreme is that all of the agricultural land surrounding Cross Plains, Wisconsin, ha- had no water management structures or strategy in place. The only water management uh, structures that, uh, that were in place were tile drainage <clears throat> to help the water drain off of the agricultural fields faster. So the, the current uh, agricultural USDA best management practices of tile draining those fields so corn could be planted way too early in the season actually made the floods worse. So uh, if, if we just understand that, that we're going to get a big rainstorm, that more rain will fall in a, a given period of time than the soil can absorb, we need to mitigate that. We need to spread it out, just redistribute it. We need to store it in particular locations and allow it to now move through the landscape more slowly and will help to uh, mitigate these and eliminate these flash floods that happen all over the place. And um, because storms, hurricanes are not a natural disaster. Hurricanes are normal. They're real. Uh, same thing, let's, let's just switch and go to fire in California. California is a fire-driven, uh, a fire-disturbed landscape and has been for zillions of years. It is pure design stupidity for human beings to build flammable buildings in a fire environment because we know that the fire will come. It's a fire environment, always has been. And so it's not a disaster when the fire comes, but having buildings that explode in the heat uh, actually make the, make the disaster. They make the fire worse. So why don't we just understand that floodplains flood? Huh. It's not a disaster. It's normal. I, and I think it's just a perspective issue. And if we look at it from the fact that these 
events, whether it's fire or huge rainstorms, hurricanes, these are normal events on planet Earth. We human beings need to understand how to live within the context of normal events on planet Earth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's really well said. And, you know, I've done interviews with people like Eric Olson, who've talked in detail about the fire ecologies in California and how the disastrous element of them are the failings of our design, our infrastructure to accommodate the natural rhythms of that ecosystem. And just like you were talking about with the floodplains and the hurricanes, those were all here before us, but they're starting to get worse and become disasters because of the way that we've integrated our lives without accommodating those things or designing in a way that can absorb or work with the energies that naturally come through those areas. So let's talk about some of the primary elements that you use to make use of these resources as they come onto the landscape. And one of the main ones is the swale. Now, it goes by a lot of other names. In your book, you refer to it as the swile, making fun <laughs> a little bit of the Australian accent of the guys who kind of pioneered this. I love that. So <laughs> let's start at the beginning and talk about, A, what it's used for. And we can refer to it as uh, in other terms because it can be used as a lot of different things. But also when it's not appropriate as a method for collecting rainwater. Right. Um well, from the permaculture perspective, a swale is a water harvesting ditch. We make a, a channel, and with the soil that you remove from this channel, you put it into a pile downslope from that. Um, what's really fascinating is a swale, as described that way, the way the permaculturists use the term, fits the definition, the USDA definition, of a terrace. There's an, all kinds of different terrace shapes and forms, uh, and, and it's not like a rice paddy terrace that you see on the mountains of Bali or, or Machu Picchu, stuff like that. It's, um, it's a swale. You'd make a channel, and then with the material removed from the channel, you make a ridge or a mound or berm, whatever you want to call it. And uh, when it's uh, pitched at a gradient you know, slightly downhill on one end, water will move through that uh, water collecting channel. Um, as used as a, uh, a directional water delivery system, it's one of the simplest ways to make water move in a landscape is by digging a little channel in the soil. And uh, as a water movement structure, uh, that's applicable on any landscapes, all, you know, all over the place, flat, steep, dry, etc. If you have a channel in the, in the soil to move excess rain, by excess rain, when you get a rain event, even in Saudi Arabia, for example, a lot of the landforms in Saudi Arabia are caused by water erosion. It's like, what? It's a desert. It's like, that's right. There's hardly any vegetation holding things together. So when the rain does come, it doesn't infiltrate because the soil's too hot, it's too packed, um, it's already, you know, super dry. It runs off and it creates erosion. So when this water comes, even if it's on perfectly, quote-unquote, flat land and there's no such thing, you make a channel in the ground and you can move the water to a location where you can store it. As it's moving along, it's also soaking in. Um, so the uh, uh, swale... You know, a water collecting channel with a mound in combination uh, is 
usable as a water delivery technique in all landscapes, any landscapes. A swale used as a water infiltration technique um, would be more applicable on the upland sites, up in the, once you start to get above floodplains, etc. What's interesting about this swale, now we're, we're using it in the uplands as a water infiltration system. Well, now down low in the lowlands, say river floodplains, or in the example of uh, like the Netherlands and Louisiana, places, uh, UK, these are all places where I've worked below sea level. Um, we can use the same structure, an excavated channel with a mound. We're actually using that in order to create dry land up on the mound. So the same structure, a, a channel with a mound, can be used in various different uh, parts of the landscape and it has a different effect because of where it is. We can use it to soak water, we can use it to deliver water, we can uh, use it to actually create dry land to plant on, etc. And so from my perspective I see that applicable in all landscapes. Now uh, even in areas, especially in the far north, uh, where you get frozen ground or snow in the wintertime, um, when you have uh, frozen ground, no matter how fertile your soil is, you will not get water infiltration when, uh, when it rains on frozen ground, for example. It will, 100% of it will run off. So we want to cap capture that, send it to a location where it can be stored, a pond, a tank, etc. Uh, if nothing else, we want to slow it down. So instead of it roaring down the hill and creating flash floods with all these properties in the uplands sending water down to the village or town, now we flood out the town, we prevent the floods by just slowing it down and, and retaining it in the uplands for a while. Um, <clears throat> so snow melt, rapid snow melt and rain on frozen ground is another great uh, reason to have swales in the landscape. There's a lot of people that... Uh, to just get some kind of visceral reaction against the idea of putting a swale on a property. And for whatever their objections are, um, most of what I've observed is when people have an objection to having a channel with a mound, <laughs> the most of the objections that I see is that those people don't understand how to use that as a design element to make your uh, farming operation more efficient. One of the biggest complaints is that they're in the way. Well, once you put these channels in the ground, they are the way. So it's in our best interest to uh, have a sound, prudent, well-thought-out, efficient design. Uh, so then they aren't in the way. Um, or you just design crossings to go over them. Uh, other people complain that, oh, well, it takes land out of production. Well, if you take a a uh, smooth slope and then you add the, the a triangular channel and I wish I could draw you a picture of this and then make a nice smooth triangular mound you actually can design it around the farming equipment based on the equipment and you actually increase the surface area on which you can farm so if you take a you know a, f a five acre farm you could possibly gain as much as an extra acre of surface area because you've added these convolutions to it and you've done it in such a way that it's efficient for your equipment and it actually accomplishes whatever your design objectives are with this water, whether it's uh, in drier climates, you want, may want to focus it on a storage pond for later irrigation. In wetter climates, you may want to move it away from your wetter spots to irrigate drier ridge. So um, 
I, I see them as a useful tool when appropriately designed and applied on all landscapes uh, everywhere, any farm. <laughs> and if the you don't, if you don't want swales, don't put them in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not mandatory by any means. And the basis of the methodology that you're teaching from here is also much of the inspiration of the title of the book, which is P.A. Yeoman's original uh, Water for Every Farm. And you've since kind of applied a lot of those things, but also come up with your own methodology based on your experience and how you've seen this work in the field. Could you talk a little bit about how you sort of backed into the master line system, which is outlined well in the book? and found the master line of New Forest Farm that connected most of the primary valleys for your site. Well, the um, Water for Every Farm by P.A. Yeomans, uh, the, the whole key line design methodology uh, really pivots around a, a really simple way to uh, look at the landscape and observe how water moves on the landscape. You know, a primary valley is uh, like the first uh, landform where water actually becomes channelized naturally in an in a overflow event, and the water starts to move. And you go up to the head of these, uh, these water-moving channels called primary valleys, and that is a key point in the landscape. Well, in Water for Every Farm, the uh, key point is used as a design element. You make a reference line at that key point, which is a contour line, uh, from that key point, perfectly horizontal, then when you're in primary valleys, below that, that contour line, that key line, you uh, use your equipment, you build your fences, you till or whatever it is that you do, you rotate your cattle parallel to that and down in the, in the primary valley forms. Well, coupled with that is you start on a ridge of the lowest practical ridge contour, and you make a contour line, that's your ridge reference line, and then on the ridge forms, you now use the landscape parallel to that ridge reference line and upward. <clears throat> well, it, it's all well and good, and Yeoman says that it works on every landscape everywhere, and maybe when the book was written and how they applied it in Australia, maybe that is true. But Australia happens to be the hydrologically simplest landform uh, on the planet. It has no uh, river systems that are more complex than a third-order stream. Two primary valleys come together to make uh, a secondary, and, and actually the rest of the world calls that a first-order stream. So two first-order streams come together to make a second-order stream. Uh, if more first-order streams are added to it, it's still a second-order stream. When two second-order streams come together, they make a third-order stream, and that is as complex as Australia is anywhere. So it's a very simplified uh, landscape compared to most of the rest of the world. Uh, the Mississippi River watershed, where I had to try to apply uh, this key line design principles, it's the most complex river system uh, on the face of the planet. I think it's a 10th order stream or maybe an 11th. I don't remember right now offhand. And so in order to design a water management system on one the most complex landform on the, on the planet, using the simplified uh, key line cultivation pattern, 
did not work, does not work. Most of the people that I encounter who, who call you know, me and my design team in to help them with their, with their water management on their property have tried to do yeoman's uh, s- simple techniques, and it hasn't worked, and they scratch their heads and wonder why. Uh, another uh, very uh, strong part of the whole keyline design methodology is, is creating channels that connect um, ponds that are at your key points um, in the landscape, connect them with a water um, conveyance channel. They called them diversion drains. You would make these water uh, channels to move water from one pond to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, but what ends up having to happen is, is that that will that will mess with the patterning on the land. So these two, these two things within keyline design, these cascading series of ponds and the keyline cultivation pattern, if you put the two of them together, they don't really work well. It, so most people have been confused by the, the keyline methodology, one, because that simple way of describing landforms does not apply to a complex landform. And then to start moving water from one pond to the next, th- this word is used over and over again in all of the keyline books and uh, that, I've, that I've read anywhere, adjust accordingly. Well, they don't tell you how to adjust because when you adjust, you can all of a sudden, when you're taking your ridge reference lines and your key lines and you're making your parallels up on the ridges and parallels down in the valleys on a complex landform, those may not pitch in the direction that you want the water to go. And so when you adjust, you either create a high spot in the in the middle of, of your, your tillage pattern or your water channels or a low spot. So there's all these complexities that uh, are not addressed in uh, water for any every farm by PA Yeomans. Well, the techniques that I outline in water for any farm, because it is for any farm, is that what are your goals with water when it rains on your property faster than your soil can soak it in what do you want to do with that water do you want to move it somewhere and store it do you want to slow it down do you want to soak it in there are a number of different things that you based on your design goals want to do and then how do we adjust our uh, agricultural use of the land so as to be more efficient uh, while simultaneously accomplishing our water management objectives. I don't know if that made any sense or if we just had question creep and I went off into left field somewhere. <laughs> no, no, it made really good sense to me, but I also had the chance to go through your book, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and about. so what <laughs> happened on New Forest Farm is I literally took, this was before the age of the internet and it was before the age of cell phones, you dial a phone call out of your town and it cost you like three bucks. So I made phone calls to Australia to find an out-of-print a small publishing um, book intended for farmers in Australia, and I finally found it. So now I've got this book in my hands, and I'm following directions right out of the book. And Yeoman says if you go find a key point and you put in a key line, the key line is in the valley form only until the valley turns outward. And one of my primary valleys on the farm, uh, you start at the key point, the left side of it, turns outward so you stop just as it starts to turn outward on the valley well on the right hand side the valley didn't curve outward it kept curving inward and inward and inward and there were no water movement channels in that curve and so right there if i was trying to follow the 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 
Keyline Protocol to a letter, my land did not behave the way Yeomans said it always does. And that was the first problem I encountered. So what, what I ended up doing then was uh, to start at the key points. Now, this is actually the, the key line design methodology is brilliant. And Yeomans was the f- person who actually coined the term key point. And if you use your fingers as an example, if you put your make a fist where your the line is between your fingers, that's a primary valley in your handscape. Well, where the primary valley now becomes the fleshy web between your fingers, that's the key point in the landscape. No one else had bothered to pay attention to that before. And so that was a brilliant discovery by P.A. Yeomans. Well, then, in a, in a landscape, what's interesting is all of the different key points are at different elevations, higher and lower than one another. And if you look at those key points on your hands, they're not way down by your knuckles or your fingertips. They're way up high in the landscape by the top of that ridge. So by identifying the key points on your property, then designing your water management system based on those key points, you've all of a sudden started to manage the water high up on the landscape than the landform, and now you have the ability to soak it in and move it through channels all the way through your property slowly and carefully, giving it extra residence time so it can soak into the ground. So that's how I backed into you know what we're calling the master line system, because on every landform, on every property that you've got somewhere on that property is a single line that will that will optimize uh, your ability to uh, influence the distribution and the uh, the soaking the infiltration of the rainfall that falls on your site. There really is even Yeomans even says it that one of the principal considerations is to make a series of cascading ponds that the the diversion drain from one pond fills the next one, which diverts and fills the next one and fills the next one. That is a description of the master line system. Is That's where we start. Well, then how we with the, on the master line system diverge from that is instead of following a rote protocol of find the primary valleys and go parallel down from the key line and parallel up from the ridge reference line, we go ahead and ask, well, what do you want to do with the water? What crops are you going to be growing or pastures, animals are you going to graze? What's the equipment that you're using? And now we will design a, a uh, farm design based around that master line that, that moves the water where we want to do it at first. And then if we choose, we can put additional uh, channels, terraces in USDA terminology, swales and berms in you know permaculture in, in my most commonly used language, we put additional swales and berms down slope from the, the upper uh, that master line uh, that, accomp- that those additional swales accomplish our water movement and, and infiltration objectives. Uh, that's where we differ from the key line cultivation pattern is you can do whatever you want moving that water around on your property as long as, one, it's legal to do so, and two, you use structures that are approved by your, your USDA, your state, local government, federal government, etc., and doing a master line system as described in water for any farm, it will comply with all of those levels of regulation, except in the places where they don't allow you to have a puddle standing around for longer than 15 seconds. Yeah, those are examples of extremes anyway. 
So with that description, and I know that you were talking about this just a little earlier, about how the master line can serve as the pattern for the whole farm and solve that problem of sort of the V-shaped fields that were endemic to the key line system on its own. With the master line system, you can create these parallel contour lines that are a real advantage for people who are working with larger machinery and the efficiencies of larger scale farms. Could you talk about how that works? Um, <laughs> one of the things I have to correct your your language a little bit in that we're, we'll be making parallels, yes, but they may not be contours. They might not be uh, contours. So if we go ahead and design a water management structure, USDA, it's called a terrace, permaculture, it's a swale, if, or a diversion drain in key line language. If we put a diversion drain uh, that we locate at that sweet spot in our landscape that connects all these different primary valleys, uh, we can make a design a system now that's perfectly parallel across that landscape um, as we go down slope. And what ends up ha happening is the terrace that we make, the subsequent terrace down, uh, we strive to make alley width, which is the, the farmable interval between terrace structures, multiples of two times your equipment, so it's a, a very even number of passes as you're going across the landform. We now, let's say, we're going to take four uh, equipment widths downslope. First of all, we run a couple of quicky little equations um, that you can get from your local USDA office. One, one's the VI equation, then the other one's the HI equation, which basically for your soil type, region, and rainfall patterns, gives you a safe, maximum allowable alley width before erosion can be uh, too problematic. So, and then so you kind of find what's, what's, what's the, the uh, harmonized version of an uh, alley that's not so wide that you'll increase erosion um, and yet still be multiples of two times your equipment width. Then we'll put in another swale, another terrace. Well, that's that parallel uh, will be parallel on the ground, but it may not uh, be on contour, and it may pitch the water in the opposite direction where you want to go. So we'll go ahead and we'll install that that parallel swale, and then if we want to uh, move the water in a certain direction, we now adjust the bottom of the channel, the USDA terrace channel. We adjust the bottom of the swale on one end, uh, that will allow the water to move towards that direction. So you may end up with like a parallel swale berm that oh, the whole thing looks like it pitches to the left, but the bottom of the swale, the, the terrace channel, actually pitches to the right. So we can actually create a system that's both parallel and gradient. So it's parallel to the master line, and it, and it pitches in the direction that we want to go. And then we can continue those parallels down the field. What does happen, though, is we are, are imposing a regular form, uh, a regular pattern onto an irregular landscape. So what will happen, and a great example is to look at your hands, your fingers again. Notice the half moons under your fingernails and notice the creases on your knuckles. Is What will happen in a, in a parallel master line system is the fact you will have odd spots out at the ridges, What's convenient about those little odd spots out on the ridges is we can have a, a terrace channel, a swale, that goes right to that little odd spot there. And we can use that odd spot as an infiltration zone where the water from the swale, from the terrace channel, discharges in a sheet across the ridge form. 
and uh, ridges are actually the driest uh, shape on a property. So we can use these these uh, the terraces, the swales, to bring deliver the water to a ridge, and then we can discharge water on that on that odd shape out on the out on the um, tips of your fingers on the ends of, ends of ridges. We can also use that spot as a uh, place to plant some specialty crops. You can use it for uh, uh, planting butterfly habitat, wild pollinator habitat, etc., etc., um, or some sort of uh, crop that has a higher value than if you're growing, you know, corn in, in these alleys, for example. A higher value crop can be grown in these little odd spots out in the corners. So the actual uh, ag fields are made to be a lot more efficient because they're designed around your equipment and you make even number of passes across the fields. No point fields is what the, those funny odd shapes are, are called. No point fields in the cropping area uh, unless you want them uh, to be cropped. And when the system is used, the parallel master line system is used, those odd spots and point fields will be out on the ridges primarily. And you got to look at you got to look at some diagrams to see how that rolls because we're trying to do this with uh, with words and it's tricky to describe <laughs> land shapes and parallel and all that just using words. Yeah, it's always difficult to describe things like this, but you do a really good job of giving some examples, especially towards the end of the book in those drawings about how with the exact same landform, someone could effectively put in a whole different range of contours and terraces and um, planning like this that basically serve more or less the same intent but can be different based on their own intentions and their goals for the place without having to deviate from this system. And, and that was one of the parts that I found most useful because like you said, this can be difficult to explain in words and it's a lot of concepts until you see that uh, drawn on the paper. But what is great about this system is just how flexible it is to anybody's goals for their property. I consider that to be somewhat of a compliment, so thank you about that. And I just saw this book for the first time in printed form uh, two days ago, and that was exactly what caught my eyes. Like, oh my gosh, that that alone, if you just look at all those different oh, examples, yeah. is, is mind-blowing. Well, here's what's interesting. This is I, I already explained earlier about the difference in complexity of landforms. If you take the key line cultivation pattern, starts with a contour line from the key point. So that is one, uh, let's introduce one into the equation. Now, if we have a ridge on either side, let's use our throat where your collarbone comes together right at your uh, Adam's apple as a key point. And if we make a, uh, a horseshoe shape at that at our throat, that's a, that's a key line. Then if we go out to our shoulder, and make a horseshoe around our shoulder, that's a ridge reference line, and then go make a horseshoe on the other shoulder. There's three design elements in there. If you go parallel up from the shoulder and then parallel down from your throat, that's the key line cultivation pattern. That's it. That's all that it ever is. However, with that same landform, we can actually, by only using a, a swale that is A, perfectly on contour, or B, uh, pitched up ever so slightly, 1% or less, which is uh, one foot over 100 foot length, or pitched down at 1% or less, only using those three different variables, uh, shoulder, two shoulder references, two ridge references, and a, a, a key line reference, by using those three lines as our reference lines and using 
up a little bit, down a little bit, or perfectly on contour on the master line system, just using those instructions, we have 739 different possibilities that we can come up with. Um, and that's if we just use a single pitch along any swale or terrace, because your swale can go down at, you know, a half a percent. It can then change and go perfectly on contour. It can go down at a 2%. It can come, you know, and slow down to 1%. You can adjust them all along the way. So the number of different arrangements on a single landform is almost infinite. I haven't done the math on all this. It's almost infinite. So no matter where you are, any farm, you can use these techniques as outlined uh, in my book, The Master Line System. It'll work to accomplish your objectives. Yeah, I mean, that's really what I was blown away by because I had always previously thought of earthworks as being somewhat of a limited uh, amount of options depending on the land that you've got. And this really opened up the doors for, you know, where you place certain elements and how you can incorporate the the same system for kind of small scale farms with a lot of diversity or to, to what's more common in the United States where people are growing just a limited amount of things and the convention has you working with large machinery and it, it really makes it applicable for that context too. So now we often think of earthworks as being a very permanent thing. You put them in once and you more or less just go about the other aspects of design. But I've seen in a couple of my own experiences on, on clients' lands that they do need a little bit of maintenance. Can you talk about some of the maintenance of earthwork elements that you've come across yourself? Things like preventing sediment or backfill in swales or terraces or sealing and resealing ponds, correcting the grade or dredging ponds and things like that. What, what are some of the things that you can do to prevent excessive maintenance? And what are the things you should kind of know that you need to look out for uh, over a certain amount of time? Well, first, first and foremost is uh, if you're in a humid environment at all that will support the growth of grass, is to make sure that your the earthworks that you do are entirely grassed in well with a, with a good dense sod. There are places where you won't be able to get a dense sod established, and, and that's, I understand that, and you're not going to be able to do it. And in the more arid and hot environments, you won't be able to get that dense sod. So having a dense sod on it, will help with uh, any potential uh, blowouts in the future. Uh, one of the things that also helps a lot to prevent blowouts is the fact that when we design a system, uh, our terraces, and it's not described in the USDA language how we design terraces, uh, the water conveyance portion of your swale, if we make that entirely below ground level, uh, and if we make it far enough below ground level that even in the most catastrophic storm, it's the earth itself that's holding the water back. You won't, you won't have a, a, a berm blow out because the water's down below ground level and then it moves somewhere else in the landscape a little further down. Um, so that's just another unique feature of, of how we're doing, mostly doing our, our swales and berms. Well, then to prevent inflow, if you're going to crop, if you're going to do uh, row crops where tillage is used, and on New Forest Farm, <laughs> most people can go to the go somewhere online and just search for that image, and you'll see the aerial photograph. Uh, and like in the center of the of the photograph, there's some there's a triangle uh, piece of land that's at the very top of the hill. There's a wind turbine tower up there now uh, generating our electricity, but the first four um, parallel. Um, planting fields that you see uh, were 
used as, as vegetable production for you know 15 plus years and what happens as you have that exposed soil is you will get sediment especially the finest sediment that will start to fill your your swale channel um, and what ended up happening on those fields as I used them over time uh, that soil creep eventually filled the entire swale and now is at the top of where the berm was so the whole entire field over you know 20 years worth of use has shifted so the whole entire field is now a terrace form. Well, what you can do is you can either maintain your swale channels, terrace channels, or you can choose not to, like on those fields I chose not to, and allow them to fill because you're still getting the water movement uh, and a lot better infiltration because you're hopefully using good cover crops, encouraging good biological activity, and you're you're helping to uh, deepen the topsoil layer by your uh, land use practices, and so you'll get better water infiltration on that anyways. Um, or you can go ahead and maintain your terrace channels, your swale channels, and, and clean them out every once in a while. Uh, I've worked on places where, where um, swales, terraces were put in back in the 1930s, and uh, they're still functioning perfectly well, even, even when farmers have been you know tilling for the what, 70, 80 years since then. Um, so these are, are structures that last a long time. Uh, however, one of the things that, that people uh, don't understand is when you're doing it the way we do it, and I describe it in the, in the book Water for Any Farm, is the uh, direction of water flow in that terrace channel, the swale channel, um, is adjustable. And by simply lowering the bottom of the channel on one side, uh, you can make the water all move to the right, for example. Let's say you do that for five, six, seven, eight years and you say, you know what, I actually want the water to go over to the left. You don't have to tear down the whole structure and start over. You just adjust the bottom of the channel and you you know, remove material from the high side and you put it over on the low side. You can use a, a ditch witch. You can use a one-bottom plow, two-bottom plow to make a new channel in the bottom of the channel and you make it send the water in the opposite direction. So you can adjust these things uh, you know, year after year, if you want. Mm, yeah, that's another way that this book presents a lot of options that I hadn't considered before in the ways that you can use different types of machinery, more than just like a key line plow, or a backhoe, or, you know, some of the conventional ways we think of doing earthworks, but other farm machinery that can be leveraged to do this without having to buy more equipment. So one of the things that I really wanted to explore with you is that up until now, we've been talking so much about uh, contours on the land, but there's quite a few people who have really, really flat terrain. And I'm wondering, do earthworks and other water harvesting strategies apply for flat land? Or what would you recommend as a way to make the most of your water resources if your land completely lacks contour? Well, first of all, um, there is no such thing, period. There is no such thing as perfectly flat land, uh, even if it's been laser leveled uh, to build a shopping mall. It's, it's not perfectly flat. There is a pitch and a slope and a grade to it. So then the question becomes for the farmer using that, am I getting adequate uh, soil hydration uh, by not having any kind of earthworks on this property? Uh, and if you are, great. And if you don't expect to have a drought, never have gotten a drought, never will get a drought, great. Well, if, however, you do have dry periods, it's in your best interest to capture the rain when it is here, move it where you want to move it, slow it down, let it soak in. And so, therefore, using some sort of channel, uh, 
swale, a terrace, uh, maybe you want to design it just as an excavated channel, like a V-shape or a trapezoid-shaped channel or a curve-shaped channel with no berm at all. The water will still, any water, when a rain event happens, a certain amount will soak it in. It'll soak in. That's your, that's your infiltration rate. Well, any rain in uh, excess of your infiltration rate is going to be on the surface and it's going to move, even on land that you may think is perfectly flat because it's not perfectly flat. So then as it starts to move, let's capture it in a channel and direct it to where we want it to go before we uh, infiltrate it or discharge it. So even on flat land, a, a excavated channel is a useful tool to move water someplace or to soak water in someplace. And if you don't want them, you don't want them. And, it, and if you think that, that a, a swale, a terrace is going to be in the way, well, design it so it's not in the way. Or use your, your land in such a way that you harmonize with the water flow that you've now set up. Um, if <laughs> there are useful practice anywhere, when you do it, do it right, do it well, and, and design things to accommodate your farming practices. And if you're doing stupid farming practices, change your practices. That's probably one of the biggest issues that I've seen with people who have swales, terrace systems. If they have complaints about it, it's usually because they're not using it as it was designed. A hammer is not a drill. If you try to use a hammer to make holes in a, in a piece of wood, you can do it but it's going to be a mess and it's going to take you a long time. Use the system as it's designed and it will be more efficient than, than the way you're probably using it right now because you're now optimizing your water and optimizing your equipment use, harmonizing the two. Yeah, that's really well said. And, you know, we've talked about all of these ways of capturing the water uh, through alterations of the terrain, but you're always going to reach a limit if you're not trying to also improve the amount of water that your terrain can infiltrate on its own for the quality of the soil. So let's talk a little bit about building soil as a harvesting strategy and how creating the conditions for life can speed up this process from one that takes geological time, as it would naturally do on its own, to one that can be achieved in a few decades with the right interventions. What we're not doing is we're not uh, creating topsoil per se from the top up. We're not applying extra compost or you know extra fill that we brought in from somewhere else. What we're doing is we are converting the existing subsoil, converting that into topsoil. And, how, and that's almost a quote right out of P.A. Yeoman's uh, Water for Every Farm. Uh, and that is one of the overall design objectives. First of all, by increasing our topsoil depth, that means we're increasing the uh, organic matter content in most cases, not if you're in peat or muck, which is already high organic matter. Uh, in, in most agricultural soils, if we increase the, uh, the depth of the topsoil, we're increasing the organic matter content, which is carbon that came directly out of the atmosphere and put into the soil. And I forget what the number was, but it's less than like a, a couple of percent. If we raise on all the agricultural land worldwide, uh, if we raise soil organic matters uh, just a couple of percent, we eliminate uh, the, any kind of excess carbon and we, we take, we take uh, atmospheric carbon levels back down to pre-industrial levels. How we do that is we increase the biological activity. Life needs air, it needs water, and some sort of food. And so if we go ahead and we design the system to uh, manage our water, infiltrate it where we want to infiltrate it, 
then use a perennial cover, say pasture, pasture mix, whatever your local pasture mix du jour is. One of the tools that's very useful, um, PA Yeomans talks about a, a yeoman's plow or a chisel plow. Don't use an American style chisel plow when doing this. Use a subsoiler um, or a mole plow, a deep shank ripper, or, or uh, my neighbor Paul Kuhnert calls it the hook. So you use a hook just to drag through the soil. It cuts a slot in the soil, and it, and it shatters a little bit on either side, makes cracks and fissures, so that when the next rain comes, uh, water will easily penetrate that slot, and then it'll start to seep sideways. It'll wick sideways through the, um, the fractures that, that are made by this tool. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't plow the ground up and make it turn black. Just make these little lines, these little slots in your, in your fields. If you're using this tool, the, the subsoiler, parallel to your, your swale system, whatever direction you've pitched the water, wherever you've sent it to, it enhances that, and all the water that falls in the slots goes in that direction. So now what we've got is we've got our major water management structures, the swales and the berms that are capturing uh, any kind of overflow that came off of the crop fields. Then in the crop fields, we're using a subsoiler to make sure that more water infiltrates well, with, when that water infiltrates, you know, have moist soil all the way down, uh, as that water soaks in and continues to, you know, go down into the, uh, into the water table, uh, as it's sinking, it's pulling air into the slot behind it. You've got water and air. The um, soil life will wake up, and the soil life is now feeding off of the sugars exuded from the roots of plants, any uh, sloughing of roots from plants as you clip uh, clip roots or graze or graze the tops of the grasses or mow them. Uh, now you have water, air, and food for the soil life, and you're creating topsoil. That plus those slots uh, create a loosened, a little bit of a loosened zone, uh, and plant roots really proliferate in there. And when you first start doing this in the in the early years, as you use the subsoiler in your in your system, um, you'll notice a green line where you drag that sop, to, the subsoiler. It almost looks like a nitrogen um, response. You get this band of green, these green strips going through your field. As the soil uh, continues to improve over time, that'll that'll lessen to a certain degree. You won't see that that response so much, but you're still getting that that air and that water uh, deep into the soil, right where you need it. Now, there's some folks that have been telling me that oh, you you, you in the arid regions, this is where I've encountered more people saying this. You don't want to make your slots deep because then the water will go down below root level fast and then you won't be able to utilize it because your plant roots are so shallow. It's like, well, when you use a subsoiler, it cuts a slot, yes. Well, then the slot kind of collapses a little bit behind itself. It's still a very loosened zone. And when rain comes, it does fill up that slot. But it's got the any kind of rainfall, even if it's a shallow amount of rainfall, it has to go down and it wets the sides of that slot on the way down. And so it gets to your plant roots. Um, and so I, I'm not really convinced that you have to make the slots shallow at first and then deeper later on as your roots develop more. In my situation, the, the clay soil was so hard when I first started farming there that my subsoil would only go down eight inches because it just wouldn't go any further because it was so, such a hard, heavy, thick clay. But as, wow. as the years went by... And the roots continued to penetrate. The soil life, you know, came to life. Uh, I could put the the hook. The subsoil goes deeper and deeper and deeper until now uh, I can actually pull a two shank 
um, yeoman's plow, which theoretically you need a 50 horsepower. Um, I never used to be able to pull even a one shank uh, subsoiler, American subsoiler, with my tractor um, more than eight inches deep. Well, now I can pull a two shank yeoman's plow subsoiler uh, two and a half feet deep, and I pull it with a 40 horse tractor. That's how much the soil has softened up and loosened up. And so if you've got an increased topsoil depth, you're going to get increased crop yields. You have, you have increased water storage capacity because of all the organic matter. That's the soil's ability to soak up all this rain and not be wet, is, uh, is you have more ability in that soil to store water and not be wet. Um, as that's happened through time, your, your crop yields go up, your drought stress goes down because you're storing more water in the soil because your plants are able to access it all throughout the growing season. Uh, even if it's just a short dry period, um, you, you know, your plants really won't suffer at all because the soil, the water is held right down there in the soil where they can get it. So the subsoiler, mole plow, deep time ripper, whatever you want to call that, yeoman's plow, use whichever works in your, your context. Nice. Now, you mentioned earlier when we were speaking about these increasingly uh, intense events where no amount of planning or or uh, soil amendments are going to be able to accommodate the amount of water that you have to deal with. And I know that you talked about some stories in the book, even in just the last couple of years where you received water events that you had to deal with in a way that you hadn't up until now. And many of us consider yours as being the farm as an example of a fairly mature system well designed to make the best use of water that it can, though I'm sure you're always making improvements down the line. And you still had to uh, react to, to an emergency and get the water off of the different elements on your farm faster. Could you talk about, first of all, when you decided to make that call, when you had to really uh, open up the drainage and what you did and how your sort of your system was able to accommodate that with the amendments as it came up? Right. So, um, you know, in Wisconsin, southwest Wisconsin, we've had last year, 2018, was record amounts of rain. Uh, more than two times the you know historic average rain, and then this year we're only two times the normal historic average rain. <coughs> so when you build a water retention landscape, you will retain water. Well, in the uppermost fields where I've been growing annual crops, I've been uh, selling wholesale uh, organic produce for 25 years. Um, it was too wet to actually get into the fields at at a reasonable time in order for me to get a crop. And so I'm going to have to ask everybody to imagine a rectangle and you're looking at it as if you're looking at a bathroom mirror that's a rectangle shape. If the top of the edge of the mirror and the lower edge of the mirror are swales, terraces, whatever, and if they move the water, you know, one way or the other, left or the right, that's up to you, your design. Um, When you normally subsoil and use the field, you'll go parallel to that and it helps with that water distribution pattern. Well, once your soil is fully charged, it's now, it is now fully hydrated. Water starts to soak down into the subsoil. Well, when you continue to get more water than, than can soak in, you fill all of your ponds, and that field is still too wet. Instead of, of plowing uh, or subsoiling parallel to those uh, swale lines, if you start at the upper right-hand corner, and you go diagonally down to the lower left corner, 
that actually will be slightly downhill to the left. And so now you can cultivate your fields diagonally across that way, and it'll spread the water out to the furthest edge of the field. So then you put it out onto like your uh, farm access lanes or uh, if there's other ponds or storage structures there. And you don't have to make it a straight diagonal line. You know, mine ended up being curves. So what I ended up doing is with using the, a two bottom plow is I took a laser level out and I tried to find uh, the longest possible gentle gradient line across that field. And I put a, a drainage ditch through the middle of my field going to the left on that rectangle that we're looking at. Well, then what happened is at the lower right-hand corner of this mirror that we're looking at, I breached that berm and allow the uh, water to go back to what it used to do and flow down the primary valleys to flow uh, away. And in my, in my upper fields where I was doing annual crops, that allowed those, those fields to dry out somewhat, but I never let the water exit the farm because further down below, it's going into hazelnuts and it's going into grazing areas. And I, I had it made sure it went down there. And when it hit the next, like a third swale and berm down, uh, I didn't breach that primary valley. And then it would get distributed to the ponds or the um, infiltration zones for that particular swale system. So when you have seriously excess rainfall and you're not able to utilize those fields because they're too wet, you can simply breach the um, primary valley crossing and then you can cultivate in the direction that makes the water go slightly downhill off the uh, off the field in question and so it's easily easily quote-unquote drained which I really don't want to encourage people to drain soil because uh, you need that water however in in our case right here we've had you know four years worth of rain in two years hopefully that doesn't mean we're going to go four years without rain but if, if it does if it does do that, that soil is fully hydrated. It's holding uh, the maximum amount of water that it possibly can in its current condition without being waterlogged. Mm. And the remarkable part is even in this emergency, you didn't have to go in and use a big backhoe or something to breach those berms. You were able to do it just with a shovel, no? Yeah, yep. Well, at, you know, in the, the, the annual crop fields I did on the upper slopes, I did it with the front end loader on my, on my tractor. Oh, okay. So it was pretty simple. Nice. So look, we've covered so many things, and, and this is still just a fraction of what you've gone through in the book in, in much greater detail. But I know that you're also coming out with a technical manual to accompany the book. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going to be in there to help people to understand these concepts better? Well, so, so this book, Water for Any Farm, was written to be read by anybody and understood and give you these visual images uh, that any farmer, homesteader, rancher can figure out, go, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that and do it safely and effectively uh, and not create more problems uh, than you already have right now. The technical manual um, goes through in um, <laughs> almost painful detail uh, a lot of the engineering diagrams and specifications, and it goes through all of the USDA language, and it takes a swale in permaculture language, for example, and uses USDA language to describe every single part of that swale using USDA language, and flip-flop that. It uses swale language to describe uh, USDA terrace practices, and it does it in um, serious analytical detail. 
It also includes in there, I've mentioned already the VI equation and the HI equation. If you're going to be doing this on your farm, uh, you don't necessarily have to use the engineering mathematics to put in a system. However, it's in your best interest to do your homework. Do your homework. How much rain falls from your sky? What is the infiltration rate for your soil types if everything was working well? What are the actual infiltration rates of your soil now because it's probably been farmed incorrectly for who knows how long it has been? Then how wide of a crop alley should I have in order to uh, minimize uh, the erosion on my property? Well, then how big, uh, how deep should the terrace channel be? Because I will know, say, a one, this one-acre field here in a six-inch rain, uh, there's what's called a design storm event. What you do is you use the USDA number for, uh, the, uh, it's a 10-year, it's a 10-year storm event uh, is what all the USDA terrace systems are designed around uh, so that your channels and your terrace berm can hold that 10-year uh, design storm. Um, we typically design to hold a 25-year rain event. So what are those numbers? What is that number on your property? How do you do the calculations to figure out how deep should my swales be? How big should the berm be? How wide should the crop alleys be? And, it, and okay, now we're going to make ponds. We're going to make discharges. If we're going to make a level sill discharge, how long should it be? Does it need to have a sedimentation pool built on up stream side of it. So the technical manual has all of the technical details in there. And if um, I'm not trying to prevent people from buying it, <laughs> but those people who who uh, get bored to tears with technical reality um, may not find it an enjoyable read, but it will be an informative read and it will help you to design your swale and berm system to comply with USDA uh, and Army Corps of Engineer codes, which we really should do that. Don't go out here and be a rebel and just kind of move dirt all over the place without finding out what the, the federal regulations that apply to you, the state, the local, the county, the water management district. What are the rules that apply to you? How can you comply with all those laws, whether you like them or not? How can you comply with those laws and still accomplish your water management objectives on your property? So that's what the technical details on the, the technical manual goes into. It's all black and white, no color photographs, lots of you know engineering looking diagrams, numbers and equations. It's it's a beautiful <laughs> it's a thing to behold. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, I mean that's really important stuff, especially when doing it on the scale and, and with the urgency that it needs to be done in the days and years to come. I, for one, have been looking into and researching uh, water harvesting systems earthworks, permaculture techniques for a long time. And for what it's worth, I got a ton out of this. I've never had this explained in such a way that really answered all of the questions and the doubts that I've had. And the the points at which I thought some of previous systems and pedagogies were somewhat limited. I really recommend this to anybody who still has some questions about water harvesting and earthworks methods. So uh, before I let you go, Mark, could you tell us about some of the other uh, resources and the release date for the technical manual, as well as ways that our listeners can get in contact with you and your team? Sure. First of all, this book, Water for, for Any Farm, um, those of you who uh, 
only have like a sixth grade reading level, you'd be all right because that's all I can write in is at the sixth grade reading level. It's, <laughs> it's an easy read. It's more narrative. This is this is what I've done. You know, it's it's more of an aw shucks kind of perspective. Whereas a technical manual is a lot, will be a lot more precise language, and it's not as enjoyable to read. Um, so uh, don't worry about water for for any farm. It's easy to read. It's fun to read. Um, some other resources that you uh, might want to look into. Look up the USDA code. Just do a, a internet search for I think I believe it's code 600, which describes terraces and the use of terraces. And you'll you'll see right up front from their definition, you know that their wordy definition of a terrace it's a swale and a berm. Um, then learn their language uh, for what you're doing. So look up USDA code 600. Look up uh, whatever the USDA code I think it's 300 or 330 on contour farming. Look up the USDA codes online. It's all free online. The USDA code 590 for making ponds and whatever the one is for grassed waterways. And with that right there, it's really cool. They tell you how to do it and what to do in, in extraordinary detail. Well, when designing a more complex system that has multiple elements you know, multiple of those elements from terraces and swales and berms and discharges and level sills and ponds, blah, blah. Uh, if you want some kind of uh, help and assistance, you can contact Restoration Agriculture Development, uh, restorationag.com. And then what we'll do is we can come out and do a basic site assessment and come up with an overall strategy of this is what you can do, this is what your current uh, site does this is a potential direction you can go in that's based on the natural plant community types of your area uh, then we can come in later on and uh, plant the agroforestry system because what we do is we use the swales and berms the terraces as the pattern that now tells us where to put uh, rows of trees and we focus primarily on crop trees and we don't necessarily grow our crop trees, chestnuts, for example, or apples. We don't grow them as an orchard. We grow them as a tree. We kind of let them, let them do their thing. And as a bonus, we get the benefit of fruits or nuts um, as an extra yield. And it does not interfere with our cropping in the alleys in between. Um, so those plants that we use, the, the trees that we use, uh, come from the Forest Agriculture Nursery at forestag.com, F-O-R-E-S-T-A-G.com. And uh, we're a networked nursery of a, of a number of, of small, um, independent, accelerated woody crop plant breeders. And uh, we have folks in most regions of the USA that they're creating land races of the specific crop trees with the intention of having them grow in systems with heavy competition from pasture grasses, weeds, etc., and minimal inputs, as in you know, no fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, uh, etc., uh, mm -hmm. and high yields simultaneously. So my personal uh, three that I focus on the most um, at my own breeding site are chestnuts and hazelnuts and pine nuts. The pine nuts that I use are Korean pine. Um, we also have, you know, access to, you know, breeders who are working uh, with pinyon pine, Italian pine, uh, Siberian pine. We've got folks doing uh, walnut. Uh, believe it or not, we've got uh, walnuts that have survived in Wisconsin and, and are producing walnuts like the California walnut, not just black walnut. And um, we've got folks that are working on pecan as well. The idea here is to have uh, 
seedling plants, not necessarily grafted plants, because genetic diversity is actually an advantage in a natural system. And when we put a genetic diversity out there, if the weather weirds on us, it goes strange here and there, uh, we will have in our plantings the right genetics to go forward, and then we continue to replant and select based on reality. We already talked about designing around reality. We're growing woody crops, food for people, based on reality. Pests are a reality in the world. They really are. We don't have to fight against them with poisons. We're breeding right along with them for resistance. Diseases are natural and normal. They're not a disaster, something that happens to your, you know, your plants that you have to fight against. We breed right along with it for natural resistance and so on and so on and so on. We're breeding actively forward uh, the varieties that will survive our site with the way reality is. And so if you're ordering plants from Forest Ag, for example, we uh, also have the ability now to target you. If you just order uh, Chinese chestnuts, for example, and you're in Maine, well, we'll we choose from our breeders who are up further north with similar soil types instead of sending you genetics front that are that are thriving down in Oklahoma, for example. Hmm. Yeah, perfect, man. These are some fantastic resources. I'm really hoping that this gets out there even further. I'm very excited and and love the passion that you speak with and all of the great work that's come up. I mean, even in just the short two years since I talked with you, like seeing how much this has advanced is, is just really great to see. Um, so, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this in greater detail and to let us know about your work and your book. I really hope we can do another follow-up and continue to catch up as these things progress. And, and we will. And, and remember this, all of you who are listening, we are living in fascinating times. You and I, all of us, are being called to go above and beyond what we ever thought was possible. And there's baggage from the past that we have to just ignore because there are techniques and tools that we've been taught and, and drummed into us over and over and over again that just aren't true. And you and I, all of us, we need to do everything we can to help uh, all the human race for one and all of our brothers and sisters, two-legged, four-legged, and so on, uh, to survive reality as it is and here it comes marvelous well thank you so much for those parting words i couldn't agree more uh i look forward to catching up with you again keep up the great work mark thanks so much take it easy everybody thank you all right that wraps things up for this week's episode if you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it as well as articles and other resources you can find the full library of previous podcasts at abundantedge.com the best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.